But doing the same things over and over again tend to not lead to innovation, at least efficiency, but it doesn't lead to innovation. Power to Live More with Joe Dodds. Welcome to the Power to Live More podcast, all about productivity, organisation, well-being, energy and resilience. I'm Joe Dodds and I started this show back in 2016 to enable interesting people to share their stories about how they use their power to live more and by that I mean how they focus on productivity, organisation, well-being, energy and resilience to enable them to do more of the stuff that they want to do and less of the stuff that they don't. After 241 shows I've taken a pause from doing new interviews to reshare previous interviews. They were too good to not revisit. So please do bear in mind that this podcast might refer to events from the past as current or in the future, but rest assured that the stories, tips and advice shared by my guests continues to be pure gold. Hello, my name is Ellie Dodds and I'm co-presenter and today Joe's interviewing Grace Marshall. Grace and Joe met many years ago at a Carrie Wilkerson event and have loosely kept in touch through social media since. Author of the award-winning How to Be Really Productive, Grace is known for her refreshingly human approach to productivity. Featured in The Guardian, Forbes and Huffington Post, her work as a productivity ninja with global productivity training company, Think Productive has helped thousands of people to replace stress, overwhelm and frustration with success, sanity and satisfaction. Her new book, Struggle, The Surprising Truth, Beauty and Opportunity Hidden in Life's Shittier Moments is out now. Back to the studio. Today I'm interviewing Grace Marshall. Welcome Grace, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me Jo. So it's lovely for us to reconnect. Um, we, we spent ages chatting before we've come on, haven't we? Because we we met many moons ago and we haven't really ever spoken since. No, that's it. We've had about 10 years to catch up on. <laughs> exactly. But we were saying how yeah, there's so many, I mean, I think back to that time and there were so many people that I met then that I still am in touch with now. But most of what we know about each other is, you know, friends of friends or something we see the other person doing or a webinar or in your case, a book that you've published or whatever. Um, and we, uh, you know, we do keep up, don't we? We just don't do it verbally or face to face. Yeah, <laughs> sort of indirectly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sort of like distant cousins or something, isn't it? Yeah. So- <laughs> So let's get started with you telling us who you are, what you do, and crucially, where you do it. So my name's Grace Marshall. Um, I'm a productivity ninja with Think Productive. So um, those of you who are familiar with the show, I know that Joe interviewed Graham Alcott, who founded Think Productive a couple of years ago. So I work as part of his team, which basically means I go and deliver training workshops and speak at things like conferences and staff away days, that sort of thing on productivity. Um, I also do my own coaching, so I run my own coaching business, and um, I write books. Uh, So I've got three books. Um, The first was 21 Ways to Manage the Stuff That Sucks Up Your Time. The second was called How to Be Really Productive. And the third one that's just come out is um, Struggle, The Surprising Truth, Beauty and Opportunity Hidden in Life's Shittier Moments. I love that the titles are getting longer and longer. <laughs> oh, do you know, writing short titles is just not not my not my strength at all. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, where do you where do you do that? Uh, so I 
mainly I'm based at home. So I do that at home. I'm in my conservatory where there's a lot of light. It gets a bit hot sometimes. And in the summer, there's um, there's bees and all sorts that come in into the um, into the room. But um, yeah, no, it's a really nice space. And that's in Stafford in the middle of the UK. Um, but then when I am delivering face to face a lot of the training workshops, um, when there isn't a pandemic, I would typically be jumping on a train, traveling around the place uh, to deliver those face to face with people. Lovely. So it's interesting um, or not surprising that you should say productivity is your thing when you've just told me that you not only um, work as an associate or however you'd call it for another organization, you also do your own coaching and you've written three books. <laughs> <laughs> So we shouldn't be surprised that productivity is your thing, but tell us how you got to where you got to, because you just revealed to me before we started speaking on here that um, you didn't think productivity was your thing at all back in the day. Mm -hmm. So so where did all this come from? Yeah, so I started off um, coaching, well, when I very first started coaching, I could coach anybody on anything, which is true from a coaching perspective, but rubbish from a marketing perspective. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I ended up uh, working mainly with people who were juggling business and family, um, and I was in the same position. So uh, let's see, my kids are now 12 and 15. My business is 13, so it's officially a teenager. Um, and um, and so a lot of the, the biggest challenges um, faced by all of my clients was too much to do, not enough time, not enough time, how do I fit it all in? And, and I'm naturally disorganized, so I wouldn't have picked time management as my thing, so I resisted it a lot. But um, we were just chatting, actually, at the event that we met at. Um, one of the big questions I was wrestling with was, well, what are my clients' biggest challenges? And the top one was always time. Um, so I just got to a point where I thought, do you know what, Grace, just, just answer the question. Like, if it helps, then keep doing it. If it doesn't, then do something else. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I kind of put put my um, I'm not qualified and my imposter syndrome to one side and thought, right, let's just give it a go. Um, and actually, I think what happened was because I'm naturally disorganized, because I um, maybe don't come from a traditional time management perspective, I think I, I brought something fresh to the conversation. And I think I talked about productivity in a way that a lot of other people went, oh, that's so relatable. Yeah. Um, and you know, like the first two pages of my first book, people would often go, have you been inside my head? Because that's exactly how it feels. Yeah, yes, yes. I think it's commendable that, uh, that you threw yourself into something that was not what you thought <laughs> was your forte to help your clients even better. That I mean, that's almost... The PR thing, isn't it? That, uh, <laughs> that you 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 were so concerned for their biggest issue that you got over your own <laughs> self, your own issue with it, um, and and here we are. So, so how did that then play out? Because it's really interesting to say, you know, I was quite disorganised. I didn't think it was my thing at all, but you know, it it made it easier to, I suppose, to get into their heads, as you say, and, and help them because it was it was a different, fresh perspective. Where did you start with that? Because you can imagine somebody sitting down going, yeah, well, I'm disorganized. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, so I think I think for me, it was um, it, it was a combination of things. It was it was noticing like what's happening and what's getting in the way. Um, and because for me and for a lot of my clients, the reason why those um, kind of traditional time management things didn't work was because none of us worked nine to five 
in an office with a PA, um, you know, and, and, you know, with that kind of everything in nice, neat boxes. So we were snatching, you know, 30 minutes in between school runs and nap times and things like that. And, and a lot of it, I I realized was about energy management, not attention, uh, not, not um, time management, Mm. because, um, you know, when you're, when you're running your own business and raising a family, you're knackered. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, a lot of it was just like, how do I actually get that focus and that energy, even if I do have the time available? Um, So what I realized was it was there was so much of it was to do with psychology, with mindset, with how we think about work, how we think about time. Um, And that that's the stuff that I geek out on. So um, so I ended up kind of approaching it more from a psychology perspective, I guess, rather than a, a sort of structured organization perspective. Yes. Yeah. Why do you think sort of time management came from such a weird place? Because, you know, most people who talk about productivity now do talk about managing energy and attention and focus mm. and, and you know, the things that you've just mentioned. Um, and yet, uh, you know, I'm thinking back to when I was in corporate and I did time management training and things. It was much more uh, sort of uh, process, yeah, probably process focused. And I guess some of it, as you say, was having potential to delegate and all the things that you can't do when you're a one-man band until you learn how to outsource <laughs> mm-hmm. yep um but yeah we're I mean it might be an unanswerable question but it just feels like so much of the sort of traditional discussion around time management is about tasks and writing lists and things but actually the solution is what you're teaching which is the energy and the focus and and something completely different to what everyone expects yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's bit, it's to do with sort of the way, I don't know, maybe there's a little bit of a parallel between the way kind of management theory and topics have been discussed. Um, you know, sort of back back in the day, the more scientific, rigorous um, kind of approach tended to get more um, more airtime, didn't yeah. it? So yeah, yeah, things that we can measure, things we can manage, um, and kind of you know box together and schedule that seemed to get more prominence compared to maybe some of the things that are talked about more now around things like resilience and and emotional intelligence and you know, or the kind of what they call soft skills. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if also it's a bit of a throwback from the industrial age. Mm. Um, because if you think of manufacturing processes, um, then you know, time management does work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because there's there's a strong correlation between the time you put in and the outputs that you get out. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas now, actually, the value of what we create depends a lot more on the the quality of our attention rather than the quantity of the time we throw at it. Yes, yeah, and I think the the point that you made about us not having sort of nine to five opportunities to to run our businesses um, or or wanting to do it even in that way is relevant too. I mean, I, I remember when I first started my business, thinking that's what I should be doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's what businesses do, isn't it? <laughs> and then eventually, through you know years of experience and transition and confidence, I think in a big way, mm. I came to realise that I can do what I like when I like. <laughs> I yeah. This is how I want, funny enough, as long as <laughs> it serves the customer sort of thing. And that's exactly. part of it as well as you say, the industrial age corporate hangover, I suppose, for, for us um, home-based business owners. Yeah, definitely. 
Mm-hmm. And and throwing the children in as as well, I suppose that in you you know generally in your corporate situation, the children don't come and knock on your door halfway through or <laughs> at home. What am I talking about? They don't even knock, do they? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they don't sort of um, you know, video bomb your 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 calls. No. <laughs> <laughs> they maybe have done in the last year. <laughs> I think my daughter always makes me laugh in the fact that she sort of sneaks in. I can hear the door like gradually opening um, or a little cough outside the door trying to get, you know, is she is she listening to somebody or is she actually speaking? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Same here. Like my, my daughter's um, really shy. So she's like, if she can see that the, the camera's on, she's like, oh, you're talking to somebody. Yeah. Um, but now she's figured out how to kind of go around so that the camera doesn't catch her. Yeah. So yeah. now you can hear her, but not see her. <laughs> I need to suss that with my husband. I uh, I quite often end up um, walking around in my pajamas still for half the day because <laughs> you can. And, yeah. Uh, and he's moved his office round, so now I walk in with a cup of tea and I'm right in front of the camera, and I keep forgetting. So <laughs> I'm sure his colleagues have seen me in my pajamas. <laughs> yeah. But you know, again, listeners to the podcast will know that the postman has laughed at my pajamas in the past as well. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you see, that's one of the, the advantages that uh, people have discovered in the last year that, uh, you know, being comfy at home works quite well. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And no, I had um, I, I did my first gig in shoes for over a year yesterday. Um, and that was that was it was still a virtual event, but it was being live streamed. So I was in a studio and um, and I posted a picture on LinkedIn and somebody commented saying, do you think we can make slippers like an accepted um the you know, business practice or corporate wear when we go back to working in the office yeah yeah it's funny also how you know you things habits and things that you don't realize so a friend of mine posted on facebook today that she'd got some really comfortable slippers she's just had a baby so she's probably even more grateful for them and she'd gone to register the baby and she looked down to find she'd still got the slippers on and they weren't like subtle ones that look a bit like shoes they really were <laughs> looking like slippers um because she'd got obviously so used to them and i um ended up having to invest in a whole load of new socks recently because i spent the last year wearing any old socks because i never went anywhere with them so it didn't matter what they looked like you know whether they matched what i was wearing or anything um and then i realized that i i was having to like go out to to get ellie from school and i was putting my socks into my black shoes and so i'd have like a black black trousers bright you know red or <laughs> socks and black tra- uh, black shoes and they look really rubbish <laughs> so i had to go and invest in black socks to wear normally in case i needed to dash out the door which i hadn't thought about for like a year <laughs> mm, yeah absolutely <laughs> so funny how you sort of don't think about these things i don't, don't know mean. so um you talked about coaching you know when you first started your business 13 years ago um but you didn't always coach and you know most of us in coaching you know when we first started out um those of us that are a little bit older um coaching wasn't really a thing and it certainly wasn't something that we sort of aspired to do mm-hmm. um and i know in your most recent book uh, you talk about your corporate career before you had your children and, and sort of came into the coaching world where did coaching come from for you having not done that originally yeah so I mean I was working in marketing and um it was you know a very tiny um team so there was the marketing director there was me um it was a small kind of up and coming startup and um and and basically there was nowhere to hide 
in that business. Um, so it was kind of a classic startup environment full of high you know, overachievers. Um, and, and I was very much a, a sort of straight A student background, can do attitude, like you just work harder. And I just kept hitting my head against a wall of going, I, you know, I can do stuff. If you tell me what to do, I'll do it. But what they wanted for was for me to take more initiative. Mm-hmm. And for me, taking initiative looked like me basically mind reading. Um, <laughs> and of all the things I'm good at doing, mind reading is not one of them. Um, so every time I did something, they were like, why would, why did you do that, Grace? I'd be like, because I thought you wanted me to. <laughs> and, um, and so I ended, up, um, I ended up going to what I thought was going to be a training session on better decision making. And it turned out to be a conversation with a coach. So that was my introduction to coaching. And instead of being told how to do my job better, I was um, being asked questions about, well, what gets the best out of you? And when, when, yeah, when are you confident to take initiative? And um, when, do you ha- when are you full of ideas? And I realized, gosh, I'm in the wrong place. Right. Um, so the environment I was in wasn't, you know, yes, I could do the job, but it wasn't getting the best out of me. And therefore I wasn't giving them you know, the, the best of me. And, um, and so I had this kind of what, what I now affectionately call my midlife crisis in my mid twenties, <laughs> get it over and oh, done with early. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I, I made two decisions. So one was to leave that job and the other one was to start a family. Um, oh, you do. <laughs> as you do, I know. Um, and so then, um, then I went through an even bigger identity crisis when I had um, Oliver, my first child, and yeah, the whole—I mean, the whole kind of going into parenting—and um, and, you know, for for someone with a straight A perfectionist background as me yeah. to go into parenting and not have a job and go, who am I? Um, <laughs> that was a massive identity crisis. But what came out of that was this whole kind of reckoning of like, well, who am I, and what do I want to do, and what you know, what kind of I think what got that started was it got me just looking for that spark of, oh, no, no, this is what I enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. And this what feel, this is what feels good. This is why I feel like I want to throw myself into and take risks on. And, um, you know, and, and yes, I might not know how to do it, but it feels right. Yeah. Um, and so I started looking for that. Um, and I'd looked at a few different areas and explored a few different things. But I kept coming back to coaching because... And it was a friend of mine who spotted it, actually, when we were chatting. He said, you keep talking about coaching. And this is from like one coaching conversation that I'd been on the receiving end of. And, you know, and, and what a difference that had made to, to me. And he said, you're actually really good at listening. Have you looked into whether you could go and do coaching as a thing? And I was like, no, I haven't got 25 years experience in some high flying career to impart advice on other people. Um, but yeah, I guess what he said left a bit of an earworm with me and and I just kept thinking about it. And so I thought, okay, I'll look into it. Yeah. Um, and you know, I basically realized that coaching isn't about being the expert. Um, it's about allowing other people to be the expert in their lives. Mm. And um, that really appealed to me. So mm. I ended up doing a distance learning coaching qualification um, when Oliver was little. So kind of when he was a baby, I did my coaching qualification. I did two. And then, as you say, nobody hired coaches back then as a, you know, so you can apply for a job as a coach. So then I had to start my own business. And ironically, I now do marketing every day of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. We think we're running away from those things, but they, yeah. Yeah. 
yeah it's 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 interesting the the whole um sort of coaching thinking that people are telling you you know or that as a coach you have to tell people what to do sort of thing but it, it's actually about you know helping other people to come to to their own decisions sort of thing because it sometimes is a bit of a a myth that people think that that you know you have to know stuff because that's what you're going to to be doing but it's also mm. quite scary then as a coach because you you go you have to go into to meetings where you don't actually know what's going to happen at the end do you mm, yes <laughs> the yeah. that matter. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah it's scary but then actually when you get over the scariness it's, there's something very freeing about it because your job isn't to have the answers mm. so if your job isn't to have the answers it actually frees you up to you just get really curious yeah. and and to go where the conversation goes because it's not you don't have to control the conversation no 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 exactly so what do days look like for you you're you're balancing as we've said sort of three things um in terms of activity and you know i'm sure people listening to a productivity ninja <laughs> are keen to find out how you manage to do that get everything done still be a parent a wife and all those other things <laughs> yeah, yeah so um for me as you can imagine being naturally disorganized um i tend to bulk against having like everything very um like I, I know some people love having color-coded diaries and having like monday is this kind of day tuesday is something else and, and i've tried it and it doesn't work for me it does work for some people but it doesn't yeah. work for me mm-hmm. um so what i tend to do is um I, I tend to go for rhythm rather than balance so balance to me feels like everything needs to be an accounting act and it all has to be very exact whereas rhythm feels like i can have busy periods I can go fast and then I can go slow yeah. I can you know I have like full-on days but also then have days when I don't do much and I can recover my energy so it's kind of like a riding the energy wave if you like mm-hmm. um, so some days and some weeks can be quite intense where I am you know traveling well back in the days when I could travel it'd be traveling delivering workshops um you know doing emails and admin and stuff like that on the train and, and then, you know, coming back home and my desk-based days would be a couple of things. You know, it would be the sort of sales, inquiries, account management type stuff. Um, it would be the coaching. So the coaching I've always done um, virtual. Yeah. And then sometimes it would be the writing as well. And then now it's kind of all, all changed a little bit. So now... What I've noticed is that the deliveries, the workshop deliveries are kind of just a shorter period of time because I don't have to factor in the travel time. So I still need to factor in a bit of prep time and a bit of downtime afterwards. But I can quite easily talk to a couple of coaching clients on the same day that I'm delivering um, a 90 minute session because I'm not having to jump on a train for two hours to get to London and and two hours to get back. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit more of um, a mix in the day, but I think for me, it's, it's making sure that I've got the energy to do it. Mm -hmm. So I tend to do a a weekly review where I kind of look ahead and go, what, what does the landscape look like and where do I need to either block out time for the sort of deep focus work and the writing, but also where do I need to block out time so that I don't have another call booked in because I'm at capacity with how many people can, I can talk to um, coherently and still offer value in that day. Yes, yeah. And talk about the, the, the writing process, because 
you know, many people want to write a book and don't even start it. Some people start and don't get anywhere near finishing it. You've published so far <laughs> three <laughs> books. And I'm interested as well in that you said that was a sort of a part of your work. You, you're an author. You didn't say, you know, in the past I wrote a book sort of thing, which is what some people do. You know, they write the book there. What, what do they call it? Magnus Corp. No, what's the word? I can't remember the word. <laughs> the, the culmination of their life and they wrote their book and that's it. Job done. Tick that box. Move on. Yeah. You sound like you've probably got more books inside you and you do I sort of identify as, a, as an author as part of your work. Yeah, I think for me, writing is how I make sense of the world. So it's how I make connections, how I get ideas. So when um, it's actually a really nice kind of um, model that I picked up from Amanda Palmer, who is a she's a musician and artist. Um, she wrote a book called The Art of Asking. Mm -hmm. And she talks about the creative cycle being um, basically you have collecting connecting and sharing so collecting is where you're collecting your materials your ideas connecting is where you're joining your materials together to make something new or you're connecting the dots and coming up with new ideas yeah. and then sharing is where you go out and, and share it with the world and and I think I'm a natural sharer so a lot of my work like the, the speaking the delivering the coaching um the, all of that is is sharing but writing is really that connecting piece that I do so it comes from, sometimes it comes from a conversation that I'm having with a workshop delegate or with a client and they ask me a question that I go, oh, good question. Not quite sure how to answer that. And then it will sit with me and it will sit with me. And it's a bit like, um, we were talking about open loops before um, we started recording. It's a bit like that for me. It kind of just stays with me. And then that tends to be what sparks an idea that I want to explore by writing. And it's in the writing process that I clarify the idea and I kind of articulate it and right. give thought to it and go, right, ah, that's where it sits in, in the great scheme of things. Mm. So that will sometimes turn into a blog post or a newsletter. Um, but if there's a sort of a bigger idea, then it, it can sometimes end up turning into, into a book. Um, and that's what happened with the latest one with Struggle. Yes. So, so Tell us more about struggle. Remind me of the, the the subtitle for it again. So the surprising truth, beauty and opportunity hidden in life's shittier moments. Love that. And I love the fact that it's so like down to earth. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, do you think I have to beat that bit out? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I didn't ask you actually before we started recording uh, what, how you feel about swearing. <laughs> that doesn't feel that sweary to me but I don't know what Apple podcast would say but anyway um so so where did it come from and what does it mean so it came from something that I was noticing in my productivity work so in the world of productivity the words I'm struggling are usually seen as the opposite of being productive so yeah. when people are saying to me, I'm struggling, Grace, you usually it means give me a fix give me something to, to get me out of this struggle yeah but what I also noticed, particularly with my coaching clients, was sometimes the places where we struggle, nothing's wrong. Um, you know, sometimes it's it's actually the place where we do our best work. And the reason why we're struggling with it is because it's new or it is difficult or it's the more important work or we really care about it. Um, and so there was this kind of almost a taboo around struggle that I noticed that was actually getting in the way of us being able to show up and be present in the middle of it and to be able to kind of see it as oh gosh okay this is this is the work it's not a sign that I've failed 
well, that I've got, gone wrong, but this is like actually where I need to pay attention mm-hmm. and where my attention needs to be right now. Yeah. Um, and, and that kind of got me on a journey of exploring different aspects of struggle. So the book goes through looking at you know, when things go wrong. So when there's a crisis, for example, like a pandemic um, or like when I had my midlife crisis in my mid twenties. Um, or you know, what about when we make mistakes, when, you know, when we get it wrong and kind of our relationship with that. And then it's right the way through to like when nothing's wrong, it's just hard. Mm. And actually the fact that if we think something's wrong, then we're far more likely to either procrastinate on it um, you know, and, and kind of get, oh, no, maybe that's not for me. Or we end up kind of almost overworking and trying to hustle our way through yeah. and, um, and maybe not stopping and not recognizing that, do you know what, this work, it just takes a bit more out of us. Yeah. Um, and then we kind of beat ourselves up and go, well, what's wrong with me that I can't cope with this? Yeah. So we were we were saying before we came on about, um, you see, as, as I said at the beginning, we spent a lot of time talking before we started recording <laughs> this. <laughs> We've referred back to it so many times. Um, we were talking about, you know, all the sorts of opportunities for further exploring the concepts of the book. And, and one of the things that um, I was saying was, you know, from my experience in sort of corporate situations, there's lots of discussion about, um, you know, you've got to fail to succeed and, you know, keep failing and then you'll succeed. And, and you know, you've got to make mistakes in order to learn. And there's all of that sort of narrative all the time. But, but that's really easy as a narrative, not quite so easy as a real life thing. And we were laughing about, you know, if your children make a mistake, you sort of want to go, well done, you made a mistake, you can learn from it when really you're, you're screaming at them, what did you do that for? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think was going to happen? Um, the, the reality of dealing with these situations where this struggle is sometimes you know, much different to how we might speak about them. <laughs> imagine that they might go you know when you're in the thick of it it's it's different isn't it yeah what what are your thoughts on that yeah and I think I think there's two things on that one it's kind of part nature part nurture so there's something very inherent in us that um is resistant to making mistakes and particularly the kind of mistakes that make other people think less of us so um yeah when it comes to our fight and flight um, stress response, you know, that, that's designed to keep us alive. And it's designed to kick in when there's a life-threatening thing happening. So if, you know, I don't know, if a tiger escapes from the zoo and is running down the street at you, the fight and flight instinct is basically going, right, do I fight this thing or do I run away? How do I make myself safe? Yeah. Um, but it also has a bit of a hangover probably from um, I don't know, like caveman days, the when we all lived in villages and tribes, and we actually depended a lot on each other in order to survive. Um, so it's like, I can't fight that tiger on my own. But if I can run to where my people are, we can maybe fight it together. Um, and so in those days, being rejected from the tribe was a life threatening situation, because we just couldn't survive on our own. And so I think that's that's often the reason why a social threat or a threat to our identity or our reputation in, in some ways almost feels the same to the limbic brain. So, so the part of the brain that's responsible for that fight and flight instinct, yeah. it will treat a social threat exactly the same as a physical threat. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to making mistakes, we often associate making mistakes with um, looking bad, looking a fall, getting into trouble. 
Um, you know, people are going to think less of us. They're going to trust us less. Or all of those things, which affects our social standing. Yes. And so there's 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 a kind of a, an instinctive knee jerk reaction that is a fear based reaction against making mistakes mm. so that's probably why we as parents go no what did you do that for yeah. um you know because because yeah. we're worried about what that means for our kids but probably I don't know about you but for me I'm also worried about what that means for what that how how I look as a parent that my child has gone and done that <laughs> yes yeah yeah and and you know it's it's we can look back on situations and go you know there was an issue there and and I failed and it and it didn't work and then I did that instead and then in the end it came good and 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 you know hindsight and and you know reporting on something I mean I I was just thinking to myself um you know um Edison is always quoted isn't he as being the person Mm. who did however many experiments that failed before he invented the light bulb and you think at the time he probably wasn't going oh no that's another one you know it's fine if I keep going it'll work in the end and then I'll be able to look back at it and people will talk about it for hundreds of years (laughs) probably like really fed up (laughs) you know thinking it wasn't going to work and that he was you know on a fool's errand and everything else there were probably you know moments where he felt positive because he obviously did push through and keep going but you know we we sort of hold it up as the um you know, the example of why, you know, we should fail and everything else. But I bet at the, at the time he wasn't enjoying it any more than we do. <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah, he definitely would have had frustration as part of that experience. Um, but the really interesting thing about that example is we often hold it up as almost an example of perseverance. So it's like if you yeah. try enough times, you will eventually get there. So take enough wrong turns, you'll eventually get the right turn. Mm. But I think there's also something really interesting about struggle in that sometimes the wrong turn is right where the magic is. Um, So if you look at other examples of innovation, like the post-it note, that came about when when somebody was trying to create a super strong adhesive for the aircraft industry. And what he created by accident was a weak adhesive um, that, that they didn't actually find a useful for quite some time. It was several years later. Mm. Um, he had a colleague who was trying to you know, find something to st- uh, keep a bookmark um, stuck to a hymn book because um, he kept losing his page in the hymn book. And, um, and then went, oh, maybe this kind of adhesive could work with it. Um, and he got this, apparently he got this old bit of paper that was kind of going yellow. And that's where the canary yellow of the post-it <laughs> note um, came from. But um, you, there's, there's something about... I mean, we all often pay lip service to innovation to go, yeah, we need to think outside the box and we need to think creatively. But our brains also prefer the familiar. So we tend to stick to, that's why we like routines. And that's how I like efficiency. It's like, I can actually do something even better or faster. And if if I can kind of hone it well and do the same things over and over again. Mm -hmm. But doing the same things over and over again tend to not lead to innovation at least efficiency but doesn't lead to innovation Mm -hmm. Um, whereas often it's not until that conventional route is broken either by accident or just by an obstacle and then we go ah okay so like you know classic case with with the training that I do we do brilliant face-to-face workshops they're super practical yeah we do half day sessions where we actually walk around from computer to computer and help people get their inboxes to zero. Um, So we've always gone, we're a face-to-face training company. Um, Like that's how we do our best work. And then of course the pandemic hit. Yes. (laughs) And it's like, oh, now we've got to figure out how do we help people in the virtual world? Yeah. Um, And now we're doing all our stuff virtually and you looking ahead, 
even when we can go back to doing things physically, I don't think we'll go fully back to face-to-face because there are some benefits to doing things virtually as well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and, and we did do like short, you know, webinars and things like that before COVID, but there was definitely certain things where we went, oh no, that's too hard to try. But yeah. when, when you have to, that's when we tend to go there. Yeah. So I think there's something in... To go back to your original question about like companies, I think there's something in how do we create an environment in the day to day where when mistakes happen or when the unexpected happen, yes, there will be that instant like frustration and the, ah, this is not, you know, this isn't working, but can we create some space within that as well as just how do we fix this or do it better next time? Can we create some space in that to go, oh, let's just get curious about this. Like what happened there? So what happened not from a, oh my goodness, how did you, you know, why did you think that was a good idea? Like, so, but what happened with a sense of curiosity rather than judgment? Yeah, yeah. Because I think that's sometimes when we can start to get, oh, do you know what? That's what caused that mistake or that process is really convoluted. No wonder somebody would make a mistake there. Yeah. Um, yeah, Or like, oh, I didn't realize that that's what our clients really wanted because we always thought it was this, but you know, actually we've discovered it's that. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think curiosity is a, just such a good um I don't know what you'd call it thing to <laughs> thing <laughs> to 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 have to hold to to keep sort of there available at all times as you say it really it really sets the right tone for for moving into something useful and and maybe different and so on as you say. Yeah, in the book I talk about curiosity being the antidote to fear. So, you know, how we tend to look at struggle is with that lens of fear. It's like, this is, this is wrong um, or it's not safe. I need to get away. I need to either fight it or fix it or get out. Yeah. Um, but curiosity gets us to pay attention to it because fear basically gets us to go, how do I either avoid this or get rid of it? So it's always a, a kind of a, a looking away thing. It's like, I don't want to look at this. I want this to go away. Yeah. Whereas curiosity invites you to look. Yeah. So fear kind of says danger, keep out, and curiosity goes, "Ooh, that's interesting. Let's take a close look." Yes, yes, yeah, yeah I like that. Mm-hmm. I was thinking what you're talking about um, your your midlife crisis. Through, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, going back to, to talking about uh, coaching, I think it's interesting. I'm amazed some companies still use coaching because it's so often that people end up leaving. <laughs> <once> <laughs> <having> <laughs> That certainly happened in my my career. They, uh, one particular company put in a, a real in-depth personal coaching sort of scenario that people could um, take advantage of. And, and like something like half the people in the company left, <laughs> discovered themselves sort of thing, which uh, is, uh, I guess, always a, a potential uh, whatever. But I, I think one of the times when uh, people have, as we've said, sort of those shittier moments, uh, and often they turn to be turn out to be a positive thing. Is is when somebody's being been made redundant, or they they get dismissed for for a reason or whatever, and and forced into making a different decision. And and often, you know, it's a it's a, a real positive change. I mean, I certainly think back to me, my last corporate role. I'd gone back to work for a company that um, I'd worked for before and I had a, a bullying boss which at the time I didn't really do much about well I did go and complain to her boss but clearly he did nothing about it um, mm-hmm. and I ended up compromised out of the organization i.e they paid me off and I had to keep quiet and they paid me much more than they were supposed to 
do so, you know, for legal reasons, which always <laughs> I think yeah. gives away. And then the same woman who'd who'd um, basically got rid of me was got rid of herself three months later, and it turns out they'd been planning to do that uh, uh, for quite a while. So I, I think I was just collateral damage. But um, I I'd left there planning to never work as an employee ever again <laughs> and it's worked out um yeah. i you know i i went to work interim because i wanted to to have the power so that i could choose whether to carry on working somewhere and if there was an issue like i'd just experienced i could then go and find another interim role rather than you know stay in that one and um then i got more confident i guess um about how in fact I, I tell a lie I did end up as an employee again after that but for different reasons <laughs> but after that I started my business and that was you know 15 years ago and one of the things one of the reasons I don't think I'd ever would have started a business for many years was was that fear thing that you talk about I wanted mm. security and I was worried about lacking security and I think that pushed me into realizing that what I had even though it looked like it was secure actually wasn't secure at all and actually yeah. was horrible and it was because it was somebody else that was calling the shots. And so I had to be the one that was going to do that and have things in you know, my control. And I think there's, you know, there's many situations, uh, you know, where people talk about the fact that they, as I say, were made redundant or, you know, they lost their job for one reason or another. And actually it was a massive turning point in their life. Mm, absolutely. Because, you know, I think quite often people are stuck in jobs where they go, well, it's not great, but it's not bad enough for. But- I want to leave yet and so it's like it's that kind of compromise that we make um and you know and, and and yes sometimes totally understand sometimes the reasons why we might do that and you know sometimes it might be kind of jobs might be limited on choices and we've got bills to pay and all of that kind of stuff but i think there there is something about if we compromise too long um it's there's, there's a part of you that dies basically inside yeah. isn't there yeah. and and also from the company's perspective, if you've got a whole lot of people who are not actually that engaged because then they're not in the right place, then that's not great either. Mm. Um, I remember actually talking to my coach at the point where I realized in the session, I was like, I think my answer to your next, qu- you know, that question that he just asked me was, I, th- I think what I might need to do is leave, but I'm feeling conflicted now because you're being paid by them. <laughs> and he was like, no, my job is to help you figure out what where you need to be and if you're not in the right place yeah. then you leaving is good for you and good for them yes. because it frees up the space for somebody else to come along that does fit the role yeah. Yeah. um and I just you know, wonder how often that happens in that we we stick to the familiar because there's a sense of security and familiarity to it it's like better the devil I know kind of thing um yeah whereas like you say when I've been when you've been pushed or when you've been forced to kind of go there you realize you 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 then have to entertain it's like was it necessity is the mother of all invention is that you've got the necessity of like having to find a different route but then also you realize oh I didn't die and the world didn't end and so I think then it gives you a bit more of a boldness and like you say, that, that kind of thing of like, well, I can choose and actually I want to I want to hold the power of choosing and not feel like that choice is being made by somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You just reminded me, actually, I was listening to a, a really good podcast this week, um, The Diary of a CEO, which I've mentioned on many occasions. And he was interviewing 
somebody who's called, I think, Professor Green, who I got Ellie to look up because we were driving at the time. I think he's a, a former rapper because he talked about being in the music industry. Oh, wow. But now he's obviously got a PhD and all that sort of stuff. And he was talking about quite a difficult um, childhood and so on. Um, but he, he made the comment. And uh, again, regular listeners will know I can never remember quotes. I can never remember <laughs> <laughs> the, the actual sort of, you know, succinct, pithy way of putting anything. But I can remember the... The, uh, the 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 intention behind it, and he he said something which reminded me of that thing about, and you've just um, mentioned it a bit as well. You know, all those other days where it was really shitty, I got through them. You know, I'm here because whatever I thought was going to happen, you know, that would be terrible, didn't. Mm. <laughs> Otherwise, it wouldn't yeah. happen anymore, sort of thing. Um, and um, and yeah, it just reminded me, and you, something you just said then um, reminded me of that too. That. And I suppose that's isn't that the, the the beauty of being older and having the wisdom to know that you know I've gone through so many shitty scenarios and yeah. I've gone through them <laughs> that you know that you know I'm quite resourceful and able to do so is how you end up feeling as you get older and older. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, I, and that's the thing I go to when I'm, I'm yeah when I go back to me as a parent and my child does something I go. Oh! what did you do that for I'm like oh no 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 this is how they learn (laughs) and and you know I think back to some of the stuff that I did um as as a kid and and probably later on actually it was probably after I left home and when I went to uni those were those were my real learning years because I had a bit of a sheltered upbringing um so yeah so when I was really out on my own then it was like the some of the stuff that I did I'm quite glad my parents didn't know about actually because they probably would have had a heart attack and go what what did you do how why did you think that'd be a good idea but you know those were that was how I learned yeah and um and so that often remembering that reminds me when I'm in that parenting situation to go okay so yeah then and and the coaching that I you know being a coach I think helps for me because I can always fall back on my coaching to to ask questions rather than go no, you should have done this. Yeah. Um, and then it'll be like, okay, so so what were you thinking? <laughs> and just like, oh, I see. Okay. And so what do you think about that now? <laughs> um, but yeah. like, yeah, the, the, the sense of humor in me um, is kept alive by knowing, ah, yeah, yeah, this is how they learn. <laughs> yes. I'm just going to not let Ellie go anywhere. She's not going to go to university <laughs> or go out or enjoy anything with her friends or, you know, do anything. <laughs> I'm just going to lock her in the house. <laughs> if she's anything like me no no not at all not at all but again but regular listeners will know that she you know she's encouraged to be independent <laughs> but yeah sometimes you just wish if you that you could just lock them in the cupboard and not not have them exposed to any of uh, those difficult scenarios <laughs> but I think also like societally we we tend to prize getting it right don't we we're like kind of you right the way from school where the point is to hit the A's and to get the answer right and to get yeah. you know, 100% on the test or whatever it is um you know, that's what we tend to celebrate is like having all the answers um and and so we I think we create this environment in our culture where we think the point is to be perfect or have the right answers rather than yeah. the journey of learning where you develop the ability to you know create the solutions and to 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 explore and finances yeah it's true I mean I think you know sometimes in situations you know many people struggle with saying I don't know I'll find out or Mm -hmm. you know I don't know um does anyone else know sort of thing and and certainly I mean again thinking back to corporate 
character thing, the whole leadership thing that we often in this society expect the leaders to know everything and not admit that they don't. And, you know, that can be quite damaging, can't it? Absolutely. And particularly at the moment when uncertainty is the new normal um, and there's so much going on, then actually, if you think about it, what we need are leaders who are willing to say, I don't know. Because if that, yeah, that's the truthful answer, rather than ones who feel like they have to come up with something yeah. to sound certain, um, and and by sounding certain, actually, they're they're kind of digging their themselves into the ground and taking everyone else with them, yeah. um, because then there's no room for manoeuvre. There's no room for like, okay, we're still discovering, and things might change. Mm-hmm. So I, think, you know, I don't know, and I've changed my mind. Are two really powerful things that we need to hear more often from our leaders. Yeah, and you know, without wishing it to get political, that's what <laughs> I said during the time of the pandemic that, you know, every time anything was changed, it became a U-turn and the, you know, the, the papers, you know, did a whole big thing about no one can make a decision and then when they do, they change their mind. And it's like, well, actually, I wanted them to be flexible to the center <laughs> <laughs> and be able to change their mind if it was the right thing to do, but uh, mm. apparently not if you're uh, reporting in the media, but there we go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> So just to turn things very practical before I go into the, the last couple of questions of the, the show, um, as a productivity ninja, <laughs> I feel I would be remiss not to ask you about um, tools and apps and tips for productivity. So, you know, what, what's your, your top three of any of those things? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so tools wise, um, so I, I, I use Todoist, which I know you do as well. <laughs> So yeah, that's my that's my second brain. That's where I store everything that needs to be done at some yeah. point. Um, and yeah, and that's that's absolutely brilliant because I had baby brain before I had babies, so I can't remember things. Um, so being able to dump it all in there and then organize it is an absolute lifesaver. Um, I also use Trello for collaborating with a couple of members of my team. So I have um I've got the Think Productive team, um, and and that's kind of you know p- part of the Think Productive organization. But in terms of my own business, I've got um, a couple of members of my team who work with me on like my social media and um, and kind of graphics and things like that. So um, so we use Trello to collaborate on that, and and the reason why I use Trello for that is just because it's so visual. So yeah. we can see like here's what we've got coming up, and we can put ideas in in the bucket, and then we can move them around. Um, and then you know, my designer can add stuff for approval and we can go right yeah that's that's ready to be scheduled like and go for that so mm-hmm. so I use that so that's that's two tools um what's my third tool um I'm gonna go with a calendar the basics but actually that's yeah that's the, the you know yeah absolutely go to go my go-to on that yeah, yeah. um yeah definitely yeah. um yeah <laughs> and, and and just a few tips you talked about working with people around inbox zero it's something that um I talk about quite a lot um I bet the people some of the people that come to your courses are probably like what <laughs> and uh some of our, our mutual connections uh uh have admitted to um one of my podcast guests, 22,000 emails in her inbox. But yeah. she still she still does operate at Inbox Zero because she knows what's in her inbox. She doesn't lose things. Yeah. <laughs> but Inbox Zero with 22,000 emails in there, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, email is such an oh, such an interesting beast. I think, um, yeah, lots of different ways of of dealing with it. You know, some people take a fishing approach, so it's like as long as I can go and fish for what I need, I will just leave the rest of it in the stream. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and I can understand that. Um, I I tend to find for me, um, oh gosh, ages ago I was speaking to somebody who was a personal organizer, so like kind of physical decluttering was what yeah. they did. And, and she said that clutter is um, basically unmade decisions. Yes. And I know that if I leave things in the inbox, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's, yeah. You know, I haven't made a decision about what I want to do there. Yeah. And if I leave it in there, I will keep seeing it and I'll keep coming back to it and I'll be scrolling up and down going, oh, 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 yeah, oh I should have done that. Oh, oh, should I look at this right now? And it just kind of completely steals yeah. my attention. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so, so for me, it's like kind of, reduce the amount of amount of times you make a decision about the email um is is essentially what's behind the inbox zero technique yes and it's interesting you say that because that's something that i've been um thinking about in the last couple of weeks in terms of my to-doist tasks because a lot of the tasks that end up on my to-doist list are forwarded from my email Mm -hmm. um and I used to lazily just forward them and then, you know, file them in the relevant project and filter them and all that sort of stuff. But then I realized recently that some of the reasons that I was procrastinating on certain tasks was because, and it's effectively what you've just said, and I hadn't sort of thought about it in that way, but I'd have to make a decision about what the task was before I actually did it because the the title means nothing and i have to yeah. click through the email work out what i'm supposed to be doing etc cetera, etc cetera. so i've made a real conscious effort in the last couple of weeks to rewrite all my or well, not all of them but a lot of my tasks to be absolutely clear in terms of what needs to be done mm. you know the, the next action sort of concept yeah. um to stop me avoiding looking at the things that i don't really know what they're all about yet because i haven't looked close enough because i haven't bothered to do that <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's yeah, so often the case when we're procrastinating, isn't it? It's like, oh, yeah, now I haven't actually figured out what the next step is. That's yeah. why I'm not doing it. And once I've figured out the next step, actually, it's really easy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, and I just realized exactly that, that, that my tasks don't look like next steps, even though they are, but, be- mm. but they don't, because I have to go in and, you know, work out what they are before I start them. So I tend to just scan past them think I'll come back to that one later because it looks too hard and it's not as you say interesting yeah Yeah. lovely so last couple of questions then Grace firstly um what about those um days where it all goes horribly wrong how do you deal with those (laughs) so um I'm gonna do more swearing here (laughs) I'm gonna I'm gonna go to my what I call the three shits process in (laughs) in the book (laughs) so um so the first is oh shit which is that just recognizing like, ah, okay, something's happened, something's gone wrong, or this is painful, or this is hard. Um, and, and to go back to like, kind of why, why that matters is because it helps us to override the, or helps us to notice, I think, that fight and flight instinct. Uh-huh. And by noticing it, we can then bring the rest of our human brain back online, yeah. um, which is then when I go to the second shit, which is what is this shit? Um, and and that's when we activate curiosity. So um, and, and it might not be straight away. So I might need a bit of processing time. I might need to walk away. I might need to just give myself a, a break to get back into a better place, depending on how much it's affected me before I come and do the curiosity thing. But then just to go like, what happened there? And 
And quite a few times now when something has gone wrong, particularly in my business, and um, or I've just had like, I've, I don't know, a, a, a really bad inquiry call. I'm like, what the heck happened? When I can get myself into a place of curiosity and start, start looking at it, I'll often notice something that I can then use to refine my processes or refine my business or my positioning or my messaging or something like that. So there's always a gem I can take from that. Yeah. Um, and that's what I call the holy shit moment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's that revelation, it's that truth, um, opportunity or beauty, basically, that I write about in the book. Um, and, you know, and, and then it's that whole thing of, um, so I talk about, finding the treasure and how where we keep our treasure is often not where we found it so where we where we tend to keep treasure is like you know, imagine in a, in a beautiful museum and it's clean and it's good lighting and it's all been polished but where we tend to find treasure is like in the caves in the dirt yeah. um and and in those moments of struggle yeah. so um yeah so when things go wrong days when things go wrong um, and this might not happen all in one day, but that's kind of the process that I try and try and go through. Yes, yeah. <laughs> all those uh, those titles. <laughs> <laughs> it's memorable. <laughs> yeah, it almost makes it feel, you know, not so bad thinking about exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. And and I think that that's also really helpful in in struggle as well. That humor. Um, you know, whenever you can bring humor or laughter into into a situation, it yeah. does help to diffuse something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last question is, what about those days where you get to live more? And that's where I say that you get to do more of the things that you want to do and less of the stuff that you don't want to do. What do those days look like for you? Mm. I think for me, it usually involves a good conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether that's if it's work, it's 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 a light bulb moment conversation. It's it's the kind of conversations that go deeper than the everyday um, and or you kind of get somebody thinking differently about their situation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so a good a good geek out conversation, definitely. And if it's not work related, yeah, equally uh, conversations with friends, with family, um, reading a good book. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, yeah, love a good book, good food. Um, yeah, good book, good food, and good company, probably. <laughs> Sounds blissful. <laughs> that's brilliant thank you grace i've really enjoyed talking to you today tell people how they can find out more about you and get in touch so um you can find out more about me at gracemarshall.com and um you can find me in all the usual social media places so i'm grace marshall on twitter grace marshall ninja on instagram because i didn't get there quick enough to get just my name and um and you'll be able to find me on um, on facebook and linkedin if you search for grace marshall productivity ninja probably (laughs) yeah productivity is just quite sort of distinctive isn't it yes yeah (laughs) absolutely Brilliant. brilliant thank you so much grace thanks for your time today oh i thoroughly enjoyed it thanks joe use your power to live more